Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Married for over 30 years. A seemingly normal, devoted husband. Father of one son and one daughter president of the church council and a Boy Scout leader, and a serial killer. Dennis Rader, aka the BTK, is one of the more famous and extreme examples of a heinous murderer who seemed trustworthy provided you were unaware of or ignored some of his warning signs. He was an ordinary suburbanite, seemingly, who kept his deeds so secret that even his wife and children were clueless as to his true nature. Something that sets him apart from the likes of Richard Ramirez or Jeffrey Dahmer, who were individuals already operating on the fringes of society in one way or another. Dennis Rader could have been considered a pillar of his community. In truth, he was a homicidal sadist, a serial killer again, who evaded capture for 31 years, and that ultimately negates any kind of goodness he could have ever brought into the world, of course, by a long shot. And in a better world, his victims would be better remembered than he is. And in a perfect world, there would be no victims to speak of. But this is the world that we're in. And he is a particularly infamous and noteworthy uh, example of a serial killer. In part, not just because of what he had done, but what he represents. The person who seems trustworthy and harmless, but who is in fact anything but. Trust can often be optional, meaning it's something we can choose to give or deny based on our direct experience and impulses with the individual that we are declaring either worthy or unworthy. Other times, though, and maybe more often than you realize, trust is something we're unconsciously obliged to give without much control over who receives it. If and when you next set foot on a plane, you'll be trusting the pilot to get you to your destination safely, You'll also be trusting mechanics that you probably didn't even see to have done proper maintenance on the plane. You're trusting workers and quality checkers at a factory you definitely haven't been to and haven't seen to have effectively crafted and inspected the parts of the plane. You're trusting your fellow passengers as well not to be up to something. You're putting your fate into faith that you have to have in a hundred different hands. The same situation essentially plays out whenever you're on the road in a car, especially if you're not the one behind the wheel. It plays out that way in hospitals, if you need a procedure done or an ailment diagnosed in a timely fashion. Even when you just go out to grab a bite to eat, you have to trust the people preparing the food, the people who provided the ingredients, the health inspectors who gave the restaurant a passing grade, all of them to make sure that what you're eating isn't going to, at minimum, make you sick. Trust plays a role in assorted scenarios that you might not even think it has a role in. There are some people that like to say that they don't trust anyone ever, but that only factually applies if you're a complete, complete hermit. Otherwise, some level of trust is requisite for interacting with anybody that you might encounter. That having been said, it's always more disturbing 
when it's not just anybody who you might encounter, but somebody who is close to home who potentially betrays your trust. Or at least someone who makes us think that our trust is misplaced. In the previous two episodes, I talked about outsiders. First, how scary it is to be one, and then how scary it can be to be the target of one. But sometimes it's someone on the inside, someone close to you and that you believed you were safe around, who is the source of the threat. None of Dennis Rader's victims knew him on a personal level, so he did not betray any intimate trust to gain access to them and to murder them. He did have a wife and children, however, as I mentioned at the top of this episode, and they had to cope with suddenly discovering that someone they loved and thought they knew and trusted was a serial killer and a torturer of men, women, and children. Of course, living with the fact that you were married to or were fathered by a murderer is nowhere close to being on the same level of victimhood as actually dying by that murderer's hands. Nonetheless, I can only imagine that it is a uniquely strange and miserable thing to live with. To endure the accusatory scrutiny of strangers from all over the world, wondering how did they not know? He did have a history of stalking, after all, as I mentioned earlier, he did have a, a history that could have signaled red flags if you were aware of it. Women had filed restraining orders against him, reported him. One had even changed cities to get away from him. So how could his own family not have known his nature and history and activities when they were living with him? It's perhaps a little bit easier to contemplate that unanswerable question, how did they not know? than it is to contemplate another question, that of how well can we ever truly know anyone? And how much can you ever truly trust anyone? Among the themes and fears explored in Jordan Peele's Get Out, one that is sometimes overlooked is the simple, fundamental betrayal of trust that is revealed at a pivotal point in the film. Uncertainty about who can or, or can't be trusted, who among the ones you love, has been living a lie for as long as you've known them, that's also captured in one of the final shots of Jordan Peele's film, Us. Some of the fantastical uh, horrors of both films, the, the more uh, unreal elements of both films, is grounded by something as basic as whether or not you can believe in the basic decency of the family that has invited you into their home or the family that you were born into. This is uh, similarly exploited in the films Ready or Not and Your Next, two recent examples, both of which take elements of a family drama, an unaccepted new wife in one and a tense family reunion in the other, and take them to uh, devastatingly harrowing heights by turning them into survival horror stories. Ostensibly pleasant occasions and activities turn fatal, and nice houses are warped into massive death traps, essentially, by family members who prove decidedly untrustworthy. And stepping a bit beyond those examples, what about the people that you were once close with, but have since drifted away from, who re-enter your life? More than ever, nowadays, we're able to reconnect with people from our past, and we can connect with them through online profiles where they can see information that we've chosen to share with the world. You receive a request and maybe see a smiling, familiar face in a profile, somebody that you knew once upon a time and maybe haven't talked to in, you know, however long it's been. But the reasons you stopped talking to that person weren't anything antagonistic. You didn't 
depart on anything less than amicable terms or even terms that you were even cognizant of. It was just one of those things. You're adults. Sometimes you you move on from one stage of your life to another, but now you can reconnect with that person and you don't feel like there's any harm in doing so. And then the moment you click to approve that reconnection, you're inherently trusting that individual with the intimate details beyond what you share with maybe the entire world. Now they they get into the private aspects of whatever it is that you're sharing online. Even though maybe you haven't spoken to this individual again in years and have no idea how much they have may they may have changed since the last time you had them in your life for better or for worse. In Karen Kusama's The Invitation, a man named Will accepts the titular invitation to dinner that he receives from his ex-wife named Eden, who he hasn't seen in years since a tragedy led to their divorce. It gradually becomes apparent over the course of this dinner, however, that Will should not trust Eden and should have never accepted this invitation, and he definitely should not trust her new husband, nor should any of the other invitees trust this couple. And in the underseen late 90s serial killer flick Switchback, and uh, I guess spoiler alert at this point, but I am going to spoil this movie, which you probably had no interest in ever seeing, and what I'm going to say, even if you were on the fringe of having interest in this movie, what I'm going to say should probably be fairly apparent to you based on the billing anyway, but in Switchback, Danny Glover portrays a jovial, friendly drifter who appears in and disappears from the lives of several friends who are always glad to see him when he comes around, and they have no reason to believe that he is a serial killer who will not hesitate to kill one of said quote-unquote friends if necessary, if one of them appears to be somebody who is going to accidentally even leave a clue as to his true nature, his identity as a wanted man, he will kill them at a moment's notice. Even people who've only recently met him in the film and are quick to trust him, buying into his, his big smile and he has a hearty laugh and a uh, jocular demeanor, uh, none of them ever suspect that he might draw a knife and, in his signature style, slice their femoral artery to bleed them out, again, at a moment's notice or just because that's his M.O. and that's what he really feels alive doing. A story revolving around misplaced trust is also the foundation for the horror boom of the 1970s, which I've discussed in previous episodes. Rosemary's Baby may be named for a frightening newborn, and I, I covered that in the, uh, the Kids Are All Frightening episode, but that newborn doesn't actually make an appearance until the very, very end of the novel. The threat that appears throughout the novel comes from Rosemary's seemingly helpful neighbors, medical professionals, and others who are even closer to her. Uh, Rosemary places trust in what turns out to be a cabal conspiring against her. By the time she realizes what's truly happening and who these people are and what their motives are, she is effectively trapped. And it's reminiscent of the imperiled protagonists of classically gothic stories of centuries prior. Uh, the women that would be stuck in a castle or tower or manor and sometimes even, even men in the case of a Dracula, of course, but stuck in the, the tower by someone that they trusted, stuck in the castle by someone that they trusted, oftentimes a relative by, by blood or by marriage, who has betrayed them. And what was initially born, this uh, mode of storytelling, initially born in the 18th century with the Castle of Otranto, was reborn 200 years later in a New York City Gothic-style revival apartment building through Rosemary Woodhouse. And another recent work adapted a classic horror setting into a new century to explore the fear that can come from trusting someone and realizing too late that 
that person has taken a turn for the worse. There are, to be sure, forces beyond the family dynamic at play in Mike Flanagan's loose yet inspired and reverential take on Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House. But not every member of the family is equally susceptible to those external forces. And when one finally succumbs to the haunted mansion's worst influences, she becomes a lasting threat to the ones who should be able to count on her the most. Most ghost stories, at some point or another, have a moment where a character is forced to question whether or not they can trust their own senses. Are they really seeing and hearing, and maybe even speaking to, the spirit of a dead person? Or are they just hallucinating? If this experience flies in the face of what they understand to be real and possible, does it mean they can no longer trust what they believed? Or that they can no longer trust their own mind, which is causing them to hallucinate. This features early and often in the television series The Haunting of Hill House, which centers on the Crane family. And the oldest Crane brother is a determined skeptic who we meet early, and he has an early encounter with his youngest sister, who he doesn't realize has just died, miles away from where he'd seen her, where he'd spoken to her. So what does he make of this encounter then when he does find out what's actually happened to his sister? Does he rely on his certainty that the supernatural is not real and chalk this experience up to his brain temporarily misfiring? Or does he rely on what he saw and heard who he spoke to as irrefutable proof of something he was previously sure could not be real? This sort of thing replays through parts of the rest of the series, at least among the skeptical characters. The ones who aren't skeptical, who are quicker to believe, for instance the middle sister who is effectively psychic, or the younger brother who has sought to escape the ghosts that cling to him through drug use that has uh, led to addiction. He, that's his, his method of escape from the specters that haunt him throughout his life. These individuals don't take as much convincing. The others, however, take considerably more convincing, even as the supernatural becomes increasingly difficult to dismiss. This is often a frustrating trope in horror fiction. The character who refuses to believe in things indisputably happening around them. It's one thing to not believe in ghosts in an everyday normal life, where most of us have never had any sort of encounter at all, much less a blatant, undeniable encounter. It's even understandable, of course, in a more subtle ghost story, such as the original Haunting of Hill House novel, where the facts of the haunting and the ghostly presence remain deliberately uncertain up through even the last sentence of the book. In some horror stories, however, ghosts can be flying around, screaming in everybody's face, slapping children, uh, causing traffic accidents, all kinds of mayhem and madness, and there'd still be at least one character shaking their head, saying, nope, not real. Don't believe it. In Mike Flanagan's reimagining, at least, and, and I know some people probably hate that word, reimagining, but I think it fits here. In his reimagining of this story, the skepticism of the two oldest siblings of the Crane family is not arbitrary to the credit of the story and his storytelling method. It's rooted in trauma from their childhood, specifically the time spent in the decidedly insane and very haunted Hill House. And the effect 
that it had on their mother in particular, who ultimately proved too sensitive to the spirits within the house. And that sensitivity ultimately leads Olivia Crane, the, the mother of the Crane family, down a path of mistrust that begins with not being able to fully trust herself and her own decisions as a mother. That dominoes into a distrust of the world at large when it comes to the safety of her children, particularly the two youngest children, the twins, both of whom will go on to live very, very haunted lives spurred in no small part by the mistakes made by Olivia during their time in the house, unfortunately. Now, mothers in particular, perhaps even more than fathers, are often seen as traditional figurative safe havens for children. Sometimes not even just their own children, other people's children, and oftentimes, well after those children have grown into adulthood even, the mothers are still seen as kind of home base for safety. The father of a household is often traditionally seen as the protector. Um, they're the one who will get up in the middle of the night to investigate a noise, fend off an intruder if that noise turns out to not be nothing. Uh, they are the defenders, but mothers are often seen as an extension of, of home itself. How many of us, when we speak about our parents' house, call it mom's house, regardless of whether dad still lives there, and maybe even if dad is the only one with his name actually on the mortgage, not that that should matter too much, but he should at least get some credit for it being his house, right? And instead, it's just, it's just mom's house. Uh, in Brandon Lee's The Crow, uh, his character at one point admonishes a neglectful mother famously by by telling her that mother is the name of god on the lips of hearts on the lips and hearts rather of small children everywhere he has no such similar admonition for a father in the film and not not just because he ostensibly doesn't encounter any fathers in the film, I imagine. It's it's hard not to surmise that at least one of the hoodlums he fights is an absentee father somewhere with children that they are severely neglecting, if not even acknowledging. But because uh, that sort of dramatic weight, that of being the heavenly, you know, borderline heavenly, loving figure, just often isn't expected of fathers, there's no similar speech or similar moment where he has to confront a father about that. And that's, you know, just one of the uh, interesting examples of, of this that I've seen in fiction. And another one that comes to mind is from the film Saving Private Ryan, where at one point a young soldier is dying horribly on uh, Omaha Beach. And, you know, rather graphically, he's, he's basically been dismembered or disemboweled by uh, the artillery that he's had to face. And as he lies dying on this foreign land, he does not call out to his dad, he calls out to his mother. And it's a moment imprinted on many people who've watched that film, and it's a moment from fiction that is apparently inspired by accounts from actual warfare. I say all this to hammer in that mothers represent a warm and welcome and healing safe zone, not just in fiction, um, but in real life, at least idyllically. Now, of course, not every mother would fit within that picture and that ideal. But in many people's depictions of a perfect world, that is what a, a mother would represent. And that's why horror always seems ready and willing to exploit this trust we have in mothers and turn it on its head. Just about literally 
in the case of the possession of the uh, family matriarch in, in The Conjuring, who literally gets flipped upside down during her, her possession scene, flipped on its head. Um, and then more figuratively, obviously, in most of the other cases, such as, for instance, famously, Mrs. Norma Bates, mother of Norman. And it's also the case with Olivia Crane in The Haunting of Hill House. She is, initially, the ideal mother um, and not just in a, a you know, an old school stays in the house and keeps the household uh, kept up kind of way in a, in a more modern professional even uh, way, kind of the quote unquote woman that can have it all, the, the modern woman. Um, that is all before, of course, the house gets its hooks into her. But she is a great mother through no small effort. She balances work with motherhood, working alongside her husband to renovate and flip uh, houses, and in this case, the ponderous and once again, just completely ghost-riddled Hill House. And those ghosts within Hill House are largely miserable, miserable creatures who apparently only find any semblance of joy from making others miserable and eventually luring them in to join their ranks. And this is what eventually befalls Olivia. One ghost in particular goes out of its way to convince Olivia that she is not a great mother, not good enough to protect her children, especially her youngest children. And the doubts planted in her push her eventually to horrifying extremes that will have lasting consequences, eventually leading to a life of misery and death for some of those that she thought she was protecting and instead had just become obsessed with. And it's horrifying and heartbreaking all at once to see this happen to her and her children and see their relationship deteriorate so significantly and so horrifically. Now, I read and watch, of course, my fair share of horror stories, and I don't think a horror story has to scare you or demonstrably unnerve you in order to be considered good or effective because our fears can be so particular and unique and subjective to each one of us. For example, I personally don't like needles. Can't stand them when I was a kid. Uh, literally, I, I was in and out of hospitals for a, a fair bit for a time there, and, and literally just about the only thing in the world at the time that could make me cry um, on sight was seeing the nurse come into the to the room with a needle because I just I couldn't stand it. And I always had to watch. They would always say, turn away. Uh, when, the, when you're being injected, they'd be drawing blood. Just turn away and you'll barely feel it. It'll feel like a light pinch. It's nothing that, that's so extreme that you probably haven't felt before. But for whatever reason, I just could not turn away at that moment. I had to see it, even though I dreaded it and hated it. I had to see what was happening, and that just made it worse. So all of that to say, I've seen several movies and read many books that have exploited that fear of needles. And that I would not necessarily consider um, overall to be very good movies. Some of these I would consider to be uh, patently inferior in, in just about every aspect, except for the fact that they did manage to unsettle me, at least in one particular scene where the needles came into play and that disturbed the hell out of me because that's a particular phobia of mine. And it's gotten uh, less drastic as I've gotten older, but it, it still can get... I'm just going to go ahead and, you know, go with the pun here. It can still get under my skin. Um, conversely, you know, you can have a movie like Audition, you know, an all-time classic, where 
yes, it does have a scene exploiting the fear of needles, but that just enhances the overall story, at least for me. And really, even if you traded out the needles in that scene for just razor blades or knives or anything else that doesn't really have that same effect on me, I'd still consider that movie one of my favorites because it's just great overall, regardless of its ability to specifically, you know, get at me in a way that maybe other movies um, can't because of my my issue with needles. But, you know, regardless of of that issue that I have, again, I I think the movie would probably get at me to a a very, very significant degree um, anyway, because it's just so well executed and, and so good. And so I say all of this, this is a, a hopefully a mild digression, not a severe digression at this point, but I say all of this because The Haunting of Hill House did have a specific moment that actually got to me in a way that most other horror stories that I really, really like have not done um, for well over a decade or so now at this point. Now, I've had some stories give me a nightmare or two that I can think of. Um, the movie It Follows, for instance, gave me a nightmare. The first trailer for the first chapter of It gave me a nightmare while I was on vacation, no less. Uh, Peter Straub's book, Floating Dragon, when I first read that, had a specific nightmare about a a particular scene, a specific scene from that book that stayed with me for, for a little bit there. That's just to name a few. But none of those really got to me and really lingered with me for even weeks afterward per se, the way that uh, the particular moment in Haunting of Hill House which I'll get to in a moment, did and, you know, I've always been somewhat susceptible to nightmares, maybe not even somewhat that might be underplaying it, but uh, I've always been susceptible to nightmares to some degree or another, so I don't necessarily think that a story giving me nightmares is necessarily indicative of it really attaching itself to me and affecting me on on an emotional level, even though Again, all those uh, stories that I just cited and the movies that I just cited there that did were, were examples of, of giving me nightmares. I like all of those. I really, really like all of those, in fact. Hill House, though, had a, a moment, um, a, a revelatory moment as far as plot-wise, toward the end, or right at the end, actually, the last final seconds of one episode that felt like uh, just a, a punch to the stomach. It felt like somebody had, had reached through my stomach, up into my chest, got to my heart, and was just trying to squeeze every bit of of blood out of it. It just had a huge impact in that moment on me. It did not actually end up giving me nightmares. It kept me up thinking about it and worried that I was going to have nightmares. And that was, in its own way, worse. And as I would lay awake, um, you know, for multiple nights on end, Wondering why this moment, why this scene in particular of the many, 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 many others I consume on a regular basis, why this moment got to me the way it did. I came to a a couple of conclusions. One, it represented a certain cruel inevitability, uh, a sort of infinite loop, not quite um, an infinite loop, but the impression of such of a partially self-induced and potentially eternal emotional suffering. Something that is inescapable and unavoidable and repeated through as long as existence is going to continue. And then secondly, 
It was the end result of a grotesque and horrible betrayal of trust that one should reasonably have in their mother. The idea that all of the horrible things that have happened in your life, that have even impacted other people in your life potentially just by association, all of the chances of happiness that you've been denied, all these different things are all the product of a mother's misbegotten attempts to save you that eventually warp into a selfish and aggressively harmful and successful attempt to keep you by her side forever, no matter the cost. Even if that cost is death, and even then after death, that idea just horrified me. Just all of that kind of was wrapped together in this moment and in this scene, and it just... It, it really got to me. And maybe it just caught me in a particular uh, moment in you know my life and in my head and things that I'd been thinking about recently. I, I don't really recall that, that being the case, but it's a possibility. I'm, I'm certainly not going to discount it. Or maybe that's you know reflective of something uh, buried in my psyche that I need to see a therapist about one of these days and, and have it worked out. But for whatever reason, whatever the cause... The notion that it brought to the surface of my brain, that it might be a little bit healthy even to fear completely trusting anyone in terms of just giving full and total trust in anyone. There there might be a, a healthy fear in doing that. And conversely, it might be a little bit unhealthy to have blind, absolute faith in anyone. That made the story that much more affecting and disturbing to me because you don't really want to necessarily think about how important it might be to not completely trust anyone in your life, and yet that could prove essential. But of course, there's an extreme version of that as well. And failing to trust someone else or trusting yourself a little too much at the expense of trusting others can potentially backfire, leaving you wondering whether you've made a mistake eventually that can't be undone. This is the path eventually followed by another family facing ordinary and potentially supernatural threats simultaneously. And this takes place in a southern gothic film about a child losing faith in a parent. Eve's Bayou. A married man, father of three, one boy, two young girls, a respected and well-off local doctor, also a serial adulterer, and possibly something far, far worse than that. One of Dr. Batiste's children is named Eve, and she's possibly in possession of a quote-unquote second sight, which gives her occasional vivid visions of things to come, things In the present, also, that she couldn't otherwise be witness to. And finally, things in the past that, again, she wasn't there to see firsthand. This is an ability she shares with her aunt, and it's something that she is told runs in the family. That said, she does not need it to see her father mid-quickie coitus with Maddie, a woman that is definitely not her mother. She sees this with her own eyes and plain old regular sight. Or does she? Well... Yes, the answer is yes, yes, she does, absolutely. But 
Her sister, Cicely, who is especially devoted to their father, tries to convince Eve that somehow she didn't quite see what she thought she saw. And so, early on, Eve is faced with either mistrusting her own senses and memory, or distrusting her father, or distrusting her sister. Now, not knowing whether or not you can trust your own mind and remembrances is a frightening prospect on its own. And in this episode, I'm talking about the fear of trusting those that are closest to you, and there's no one closer to any of us than our own selves. How well we can ever really know anyone is a question I asked earlier, and that also applies to how well we can know ourselves. Many of us are often in denial about things that we've seen, things that we've done, what we even truly feel or felt in a particular moment. This is in part because memory is famously unreliable, and our minds sometimes seek to suppress or rationalize awful things that have been done to us or that we've done to others, and also because our feelings can be mixed and conflict with one another. We can come to loathe someone that we still partially love. We can want to forgive someone for our own peace of mind, but also want revenge against them as well to satisfy a darker impulse. And then on top of all of that, imagine being a child experiencing all these feelings and mixed memories. Eve has just seen her beloved father cheating on her mother with Maddie and has just discovered she possibly also has psychic powers because she recently experienced a vision of her uncle's death just before it happened. This would probably be too much for even a mature mind to process all at once, much less the mind of a ten-year-old. And things only get more complicated and worse from there. What pushes Eve beyond simply having misgivings about her father to outright wanting to see him dead is when she finds out her father has done something horrendous and unforgivable. Drunk one night and alone with Sicily, Dr. Batiste, played by Samuel L. Jackson, briefly tries to have his way with his older daughter and strikes her when she resists him. The apparent shame he feels in the aftermath of this comes nowhere close to absolving him of having done this, nor does his inebriation come anywhere close to excusing him. At that point, he has just become a child predator, and it's very easy to see why Eve immediately loses more than just her trust in him. She loses any sense of compassion or humanity or understanding toward him. She goes to a local woman who is known to have uh, certain powers who can help her place a curse on her father to have him killed. But then, as is the film's intent, the complications of memory and the mind and what you can or can't trust even about your own past, much less someone else's past, told to you secondhand, make certain reactions questionable and even possibly regrettable. And at this point, I'm going to take a moment to stress that, of course, presently, trusting the word of victims, particularly of any form of sexual assault, is our understandable default setting. And the proper course correction, I think, from decades or more, probably centuries or, or even millennia, more accurately, of distrusting victims of such horrible, horrible crimes. Ultimately, Eve's Bayou lands on the side of trusting Sicily, or at least attempting to empathize with her, even though it raises questions as to whether or not Dr. Batiste is truly guilty and then leaves those somewhat open. Because after she's placed the curse on her father, Eve finds a letter that her father wrote to her aunt in which, he, in which he claims Cicely 
took advantage of his drunken state and surprised him with a, a lover's kiss in some uh, misbegotten attempt to keep him from leaving the family because she was aware of his many, many adulterous affairs and thought, uh, presumably, that this would somehow keep him in the household and keep the family intact. And he, in his letter, says that he impulsively struck her when he came to his senses while he was drunk and realized what she was doing. Now, how drunk you have to be to fail to realize that your adolescent daughter, who is sitting on your lap at the time, is trying to make out with you before she actually moves in on a kiss, I can't even begin to fathom to comprehend. Um, as a guy who's been extraordinarily, extraordinarily drunk before, I'd say well beyond extraordinarily, maybe, perhaps. Um, I, I, again, don't see how this is uh, really a, a possibility. So, it, again, leads me to not trust the good doctor's defense of himself. And from what we see of the doctor, he also seems to be able to hold his liquor pretty well throughout the, the course of other scenes in the movie. And also, given how the movie ends, I think we're ultimately meant to trust Cicely's experience, not Dr. Batiste's attempted self-exculpation. Nonetheless, when Eve reads this letter, her instinct, her first instinct, is to now give her father the benefit of the doubt. At least, if nothing else, because his life is now on the line. A modicum of trust is now restored, at least enough for her to try to run out into the night to try to prevent his death. First, she tries to withdraw the curse, then she tries to find him directly to bring him to safety, but because it's much too late now to remove the curse, it doesn't matter that she does, in fact, find him in time to try to save him. And it might, it, it might not also matter that she cursed him in the first place. It might matter much more that Eve approached Maddie's husband and dropped hints about his wife stepping out on him with her father. Ultimately, Eve's father doesn't die in some macabre and unusual fashion befitting a curse. He's shot dead by his mistress's enraged husband, a fairly conventional murder, as such things go, and something that might have eventually come to pass without Eve's involvement at all, much less a supernatural curse. Eve's supernatural second sight also, perhaps, fails to give her complete closure regarding what happened between Cicely and her father, in part because even Cicely tearfully confesses at the end to being confused about what really happened. Now, again, our remembrances of wrongs done to us and done unto others can be, as the film explicitly says, elusive. In the end, though, after using her second sight to see what truly happened, Eve just hugs her sister, makes sure that her father's letter is never found, and proceeds from there. She has had reason to distrust her father, who is, at minimum, deceitful, proven deceitful. She has cause to be suspicious of the supernatural and even her own influence over her father's fate. But ultimately, one way or the other, she's going to stand with her sister. And as scary as it can be to place your faith in someone, it can be equally frightening to have no conscious faith in anyone or anything. We are not engineered to be alone or perpetually suspicious of our neighbors, of our family members, or our friends. Suspicion has its value, yes. Being wary of trusting someone can potentially protect you. Being too afraid can, in turn, prove harmful. And yet it can seem easier to take one extreme or the other to automatically believe in just everyone you meet, or to be vigilantly cynical to have no faith in anybody that you ever meet. 
It can be easier to take one extreme side or the other than to find some personal balance and middle ground because that requires assessing each situation and regularly making a choice and trusting yourself first and foremost each time to choose the right thing. Thank you for listening to Episode 7 of the Healthy Fears Podcast, and thank you for putting up with the intolerable delay, the inexcusable delay, in getting this episode up. To try to make up for it, instead of the next episode coming out in two weeks, Episode 8 is just going to come out in one week. And while I'm talking about things that are overdue, I owe a tremendous, huge thank you, a belated thank you to Sapphire Sandalo for having me on her podcast, Stories with Sapphire, to discuss some topics that are a little bit more serious and personal than the things that I often bring up and discuss on my podcast here. So, again, can't thank you enough, Sapphire, for the opportunity you presented me there, and that was an incredibly rewarding experience. Additionally, I know it's two months away, thereabouts, but I do have some things in mind, things planned, things in the works that I think are going to be pretty good for this podcast come October. Hopefully, things that you guys will enjoy. So you'll hear me making reference to that and planting the seeds for what is to come in the episodes that will come out between now and then. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to leave a review or a comment if the podcasting platform you prefer uh, encourages such interactivity. Otherwise, tell a friend, share on whatever other platforms that you desire. If you'd like to read any of my writing, whether it's my published short fiction or anything else that's crossing my mind, whether it's reviews or other things usually related to the genre of horror, you can visit my personal site, johnnycompton.com. In the meantime, until you hear from me again, maybe try to be careful about who it is that you let get too close to you. But at the same time, try to be careful about never letting anybody get too close to you. Everything in moderation, after all. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.